0: Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell.
1: Hello, and welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Now the topic is titled, Meditation Mindfulness and Dealing with Unhelpful Thoughts. Subjects very pertinent to chronic pain. Please note that this is not an interview, but rather a personal reflection on the aforementioned activities, pointing out their potential health effects. We start with meditation. Meditation helps us become more mindful Find stillness, and slows us down. When we bring ourselves closer to the here and now, we become acutely aware without allowing intrusive, counterproductive thinking to get in the way. Mindfulness, a result of meditation, prevents us from having a reflex reaction to stimulation, including pain by opening up a greater array of options and choices. In this age of multitasking tasking and distraction, it offers us an opportunity to reconnect with others. Studies show that meditation increases concentration, improves quality of life, and reduces the effects of stress. Importantly, in chronic pain, meditation also reduces what's called allostatic load, which is basically the accumulated um, load and damage caused by daily stress. Moreover, there is evidence that it can make one happier and change the brain in ways that can support this. Before I became more aware through mindfulness meditation, I would often try to cram so much into a day, honestly believing that this was the best way forward, both for me and for the people I was trying to help. However, in this scenario, I myself somehow seemed to get lost most of the time. It seemed that I was part of a larger epidemic prevalent in most developed countries today, where there appears to be an almost frenzied need to keep doing things in a rapid paced mode. Not being busy is often, all too often actually equated with lack of success or belief that one is somehow missing out on life. And this is especially true of physicians as well. Meditation has allowed me to unclutter my mind significantly and I can now say that i become more adept at getting out of the way of possible solutions. Now this comment most often elicits smiles when mentioned, but then I'm hasty to point out that it's actually only half a joke because many of us do get in our way and in the way of our own solutions by overthinking, by um, getting too many opinions and so forth. Finally, I've come to the stage where i more fully appreciate the sustaining aspect of his existence which is simply being rather than endlessly doing things. Now, meditation is but one method to reach mindfulness, and it is a highly effective way that is rapidly gaining more exposure and popularity. There are many schools of meditation, but one of the best known is that of the Buddhist tradition. Its origins are in the East and has often been said While the West was exploring the world and later outer space, the East has for millennia been studying inner space or at very least exploring it. In the 1960s, there was a groundswell of interest in Buddhism in the West with scholars, college students and other interest groups developing an expanding fascination uh, in Eastern thinking and philosophy and meditation became much more widely known and understood as did other disciplines such as yoga and Tai Chi. Since that time, many other practitioners and academics have worked hard to expand awareness of meditation and mindfulness. Now there are studies that have demonstrated the efficacy of mindfulness in chronic pain. Although I have to say that the results are somewhat difficult to interpret because these studies often compare diverse groups of subjects various types of pain, as well as different styles of meditation. Now, there is no single way to meditate, even though people often still get hung up as to whether they are doing it, quote unquote, properly. Whatever format of meditation you're using, you'll know that it works for you when it confers benefit. Another mistake that is sometimes made is that would-be practitioners feel that they need to have an in-depth understanding of meditation and mindfulness through study before they even attempt to practice meditation. To be completely clear, the object here is not to understand the practice, but to understand one's own mind. In our homes, for example, we routinely use a whole range of kitchen appliances with great ease and comfort even though our understanding of how they really work may remain sketchy or even minimal. A further pitfall is putting too much effort into the process of meditation. When we do this, we are holding onto our thoughts too energetically. There is a saying in meditation circles that a thought is like a stone. When we hold it too tightly, it causes pain in our hand. Now, I had the wonderful privilege of training in meditation under the guidance of Prajan, an exceptionally insightful teacher, compassionate and very generous of spirit, at a six-day boot camp in northern Thailand. I used the word boot camp as the day started at dawn and practice sessions were lengthy to the point that soon after the evening meal, I kind of found myself falling asleep. There were three three students in the class. I was by far the least experienced, but one of the students had previously trained uh, in the United Kingdom and had generously agreed beforehand to interpret as instruction was conducted in Thai. To say that the experience was psychologically intense would be an understatement. But during this time, I did reach the point where I came to realize that there are several useful ways of meditating and all are more accessible than initially meets the eye or as easy as i would have imagined prior to attending the retreat i was also led to many insights through meditation that week the most humbly Humbling being the awareness of the high number of relatively low value thoughts that routinely pass through anyone's head. I realized for the first time in my life that I don't have to over invest in any particular thought of mine and eagerly granted extensive head time simply because my mind happened to conjure it up. In fact, now when I'm meditating, I can ignore most of the thoughts that I allowed to sweep past me as if they were leaves driven by the wind. Since we know that negative thoughts can deeply impact the pain experience, meditation is profoundly useful because it teaches us to let go of those thoughts before they can cause us harm. In my personal experience, I have found that meditation helps me become more aware and more focused by reducing and almost eliminating the mental noise and emotional internal dialogue, which obviously is gonna free up energy and allow me to think in a less encumbered way. Now, for me, this process is more of a case of returning to an earlier way of functioning, almost like when I was a young child rather than reaching some sort of special or exalted state, some major milestone. Just think of an earlier phase in your life, probably before the educational system got a hold of you, when you could choose to just sit under a tree and simply be rather than do, or stand on a bridge tossing wood ships into the stream only to watch them wiggle their way out of sight. I have learned through meditation to see solutions to problems more easily, partly through clarity of thought, but also by learning that I'm now able to get out of the way of a solution. To illustrate meditation, Prayajan shared a story. He told us that a wealthy man once lost a valuable watch in a field. A group of teenagers came by and he asked them to help him search, promising a reward should the watch be found. The teens set up, covering the entire field, all the while giving each other feedback regarding their position, as well as their lack of success that they were experiencing. Eventually, the watch does get found by a small child who is not part of the group even who does nothing more than listen for the ticking of the watch, which she then picks up and hands over. It's a strange story, but the moral of the story is that life is full of wonderful things that cannot always be discovered by traditional means. But when one reaches for these things with a peaceful mind, it can often be handed to you as a gift or on a plate, as we would say. For instance, after practicing meditation for a couple of months, I was wondering why I was no longer reacting as vigorously as I usually had before in response to unacceptable behavior, unfairness, untrue statements, and so on. But the real reason was that I had been practicing 30 minutes a day learning to walk away from many of my own unhelpful thoughts, biases, and conclusions. Now, I still have to deal with all the problems, the daily, weekly problems, but now I just no longer escalate and complicate things by my own reactions because I feel inflamed by what happened. My recommendation is that once you have learned the practice of meditation, try to meditate as soon as you wake up. You will find you then draw benefit from the effort for the entire day Over time, try and raise the length or duration to about uh, um, 30 minutes, knowing that you can easily reduce this to 15 or 20 minutes in a pinch, a particularly busy day and so on, something cropping up. Remember also that 15 minutes of meditation is better than no meditation at all. It can be very helpful to work with a trained experienced teacher when you start. Websites and books can help guide you as well. But if you can attend a class seminar or retreat, you gain the advantage of the teacher's experience who could probably also answer many of your questions. The teacher can also redirect you if you're making mistakes early on. Whereas if you try it on your own entirely, you may develop some unhealthy habits that are, as we know, always more difficult to unlearn a habit later. Now, more recently, in the last few years, there's been an increased awareness of the prevalence and severity of um, trauma in the community, which was a good thing uh, to increase awareness. But we've also seen the emergence of caveats uh, for people who want to meditate, who have suffered severe uh, past trauma. Now, if this applies to you, please consult with your own physician before attempting meditation, because of course your own physician will be able to advise you best knowing your history. Now, when you learn to meditate, it is key to develop a meditation mindset. And meditation can eventually become a way of being. As helpful as it is to observe a regular meditation practice, it should not be confined merely to the morning exercise. It is true that if you eventually do just 15 or 20 minutes of meditation practice in the morning, you are still pretty much way ahead of the pack. However, there are more opportunities to practice over a normal day. During the retreat, we practiced extending extended walking meditations. And we're encouraged to look for other opportunities during the day, such as when walking up or downstairs. I now try to meditate whenever I'm traveling in a cab or on a uh, flight uh, or waiting for a medical or dental appointment, and even while on an exercise bike. While I don't have chronic pain, It's easy for me to see how people with chronic pain can benefit from this practice. There are several studies on the benefits of meditation and mindfulness in chronic pain. In fact, there's more than several, there are many. Meditation has without doubt improved my resiliency and my staying power in the face of adversity. It has essentially opened my awareness to a wider variety of choices, increasing my flexibility. And I've also become more accepting of change. Um, I would say that meditation therefore increases one's sense of control and allows you to walk away more easily from negative thoughts and behaviors. In many ways, meditation seems to be custom made for lowering stress levels. Now, I do realize that not everyone is convinced of the power of meditation. I've certainly come across people who are actually suspicious of meditation, sometimes assuming that it's like joining some religion. While it is true that Buddhism has a long tradition of meditation, so do all the Abrahamic faiths, as well as other religions. In any case, meditation prime function is to seek the middle way. It teaches one to observe the world as it is and not to remove oneself from it. In my view, meditation is something like gardening. Now the garden or Riyadh in Middle Eastern cultures has long been used as a metaphor for the mind as, has, um, as have gardens been used by poets over the uh, centuries to, as an extended metaphor for the mind. A successful gardener, of course, must put in some effort to have a decent garden. For a few people, for few people can enjoy gardens that are chaotic, riddled with weeds unkempt. While the mind is constantly being polluted, and when the mind is constantly being polluted and contaminated by our entrenched, emotions, thoughts, and misintentions that we tend to want to cling to, it essentially becomes a weed-tangled wasteland. We need to become the gardeners of our own minds, constantly removing the debris and clutter that simply just has to go. Now, I had a most interesting interview with Dr. Sue Stuart Smith, a British psychiatrist on her book, The Well-Garden Mind, where she highlights aspects and insights for mental health and well-being using the garden as an extended metaphor. Um, She is a gardener herself, as is her husband, um, professional gardener. This is well worth uh, hearing, this podcast, and you can access the podcast at trevocampbellmd.com on the media pages where it is listed with various podcasts. She relates the most interesting anecdotes, looks into the history, the cultural differences uh, with regard to uh, gardens, how they've been used to in the rehabilitation of people with addictions, chronic pain, mental illness. Well worth listening to. Now we come to dealing with unhelpful thoughts. This topic is important in any mental disorder as well as in chronic pain. The interaction between our thoughts, behavior and mood is best understood in terms of depression by most people, lay people. Now major depression is extremely common in the developed world, affecting an increasing number of people. The high incidence has been attributed to many aspects of modern life, such as high stress level, long work hours, competition, um, making one's way financially, the demands of technology, the high degree of isolation many of us experience, and the societal shallowness of our consumerist culture. Clearly, the causes for depression are myriad. Mostly in mental illness and in any chronic disease, they are multifactorial. Now, low serotonin, which is a new neurotransmitter, is almost always associated with depression. But we are still unsure whether it is not whether or not it's the cause or the effect of major depression. And then we also have to deal with the knowledge that most of our serotonin is produced by our eye, by our gut biome, that massive collection of microorganisms that inhabit our gastrointestinal tract. One thing that can make one unhappy is the way one thinks. Now, this is also a causative factor in depression uh, because how we think affects how we feel, which in turn, again, affects further how we think and this may affect our mood. I'll give you an example. Um, Imagine a depressed office worker, Jill, and she shares a confidence with a coworker with whom she's recently become quite friendly. When she next sees her friend a few days later, her friend seems distracted, barely making eye contact. And when she does, she has a peculiar strained expression. She appears to be almost in in a hurry to disengage from the conversation. That night, Jill goes back home and tells her husband that she was misguided enough to share a confidence with a coworker, which she now clearly realizes she should never have done, given the friend's consequent behavior. Jill ends up saying to her husband, at my age, I should have learned by now that you simply cannot trust people. I guess in the future, I'll just keep my distance that's a one scenario of a person who's thinking negatively, they are already having uh, experiencing depression. Um, On the other hand, imagine the same thing happens with someone who is not depressed. Let's call her Megan. Megan also shares a confidence with the same co-worker, who again appears distracted and distant a few days after the conversation, barely making eye contact. Like Jill, Megan doesn't really have an explanation for this behavior, either negative or positive. But unlike Jill, she doesn't presume to read her co-worker's mind or assume that the reaction is her fault. Instead, she goes ahead almost fearlessly and asks her friend before she disengages, are you sure that everything is all right? Why would you ask that, her friend replies. Well, you seem a bit out of sorts, almost frowning at me, like squinting. Um, Megan ventures. Her friend smiles and says, Oh, it's these new glasses that I picked up yesterday. I just can't seem to get used to them. So instead of Megan deciding that she can't trust anyone, as Jill did, Megan is reassured and goes about her the next day feeling at ease. And the incident is never again mentioned. Now, We see here that depression encompasses a tendency to ruminate and overthink perfectly normal everyday occurrences that should neither offend nor disturb. In depression, negative interpretations rise to the top like cream. We call this the glass half empty phenomenon as opposed to the glass half full, or we also refer to the condition as seeing the world through smoky spectacles. Because depression so profoundly affects the perceptions of our experiences, as well as the way we process information, it is well worth the time and effort to reduce negative incidents to a minimum. So Jill's story offers us an everyday example how we're all acceptable to this sort of thought mood feedback loop. As pervasive as depression is in the general population, there's an even higher incidence of um, dysthymia uh, among those, uh, depression and dysthymia, which is chronic low energy and lack of motivation, among those with chronic pain, who may sometimes get caught up in what is called nihilistic or nihilistic ideation, which is the perception that life is pointless. And some may even have suicidal thinking. In chronic pain patients, mood problems are also combined with other existing disorders or comorbidities, such as sleep dysregulation, anxiety disorders, and generalized physical deconditioning. Chronic pain patients tend to isolate themselves from family and friends, mistakenly believing that they are a burden or no fun, no fun in inverted commas, and are unable to add value. Now, this is almost certainly a misimpression. In my experience, friendship and even moderately firm family ties usually transcend such difficulties. All these unhelpful beliefs add to the depressive state. As mood drops lower, thinking becomes even more distorted, which again results in lower mood and the generation of further unhelpful behaviors, leaving us with yet another feedback. When chronic pain patients feel this way at the start of treatment, they feel unable to learn anything new or develop skills. If they were to embark on a pain management program, the multidisciplinary type, it simply seems too much of a stretch for them. Let me assure you that these feelings are completely understandable, but not unchangeable. First, it helps to realize that depression is not a personal failure. Just like any disease, physical or mental, it can happen to anyone. The important thing is that it is recognized and dealt with vigorously. Appropriate education, medication, and counseling can help mitigate symptoms, encourage healthful day-to-day living, and prevent recurrence. Time for a quick commercial break. You're listening to Healthscape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Uh, The topic today is Reflections on Meditation, Mindfulness, and Dealing with Unhelpful Thoughts. I'll be right back. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems medications injection therapy and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain i'm dr trevor campbell a chronic pain consultant and author of the language of pain a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website. www.trevorcampbellmd.com Act now to take back your
0: life. You are listening to HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show.
1: You're listening to HealthScape with your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. The topic is meditation, mindfulness, and dealing with unhelpful thoughts. Now, what I've been speaking to that is commonly known to to lay people as depression um, is often treated with an intervention called CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is an excellent means whereby we can learn to deal with with unhelpful thinking patterns. So we are fortunate to have access to what may be the most effective, one of the most effective uh, treatments for depression to date. Cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a form of psychotherapy, which just means talk therapy, that aims to correct unhelpful emotions, behaviors, and thoughts and thinking patterns using recent methods to achieve targeted goals. It is the most studied psychotherapy in the medical literature and has been proven to be efficient and cost effective. Cognitive behavioral therapy enjoys tremendous respect among psychologists, physicians, social workers, and counselors who use it to treat depression, anxiety uh, states, addictions, insomnia, chronic pain, and many other conditions. In fact, in depression, CBT on its own is just as effective as other antidepressant therapies like medication. Both antidepressant medication and CBT result in brain changes associated with recovery and health during treatment. Now, it is even even possible that CBT is a superior treatment as the health-associated brain changes brought about by CBT, which we can see on special imaging called functional MRI, tend to outlast those made by antidepressants. The presence once treatment is discontinued. So how does cognitive behavioral therapy work? Well, CBT works by helping people slow down, take notice of their distorted thinking patterns, and avoid making hasty judgment or taking inappropriate action. For example, simple everyday example, if you receive an unfair, rude, unkind email from someone with whom you normally have A decent relationship, uh, whether it's work or social, it may not be in your best interest to answer that email in the heat of the moment when you are angry. If you do that, you may well regret it later in your haste, because you can say a lot of things that you can't unsay. A better strategy is to buy some time, sort out your own thoughts, decide whether you're making this a bigger issue than it really is, checking on that, and um, is there really adequate evidence for what you be, for how bad you believe it is? So, good advice would be to wait until the end, until wait until the next day at least, and then respond in a genuine attempt to get more information, and hopefully clear up any misunderstanding if there is one. Now, unlike the traditional talk therapies that one uses in psychology and psychiatry and the counseling professions. Um, CBT tends to uh, uh, focus, traditional talk therapy tends to focus more on childhood trauma and early experience, Uh, early experiences where CBT is based on what we call the here and now. And it requires the patient to play an active role in their own treatment. In fact, very often CBT counseling therapists will tell their patients right from the start that as counselors, they are only prepared to be the second hardest worker in the room. So there's a certain amount of homework and um, time that needs to be put into, um, in the week, it has to be putting in the week to attend the next session. While even a broad overview of the discipline is beyond the scope of several podcast episodes, CBT is so valuable in treating chronic pain that I hope to encourage as many of you with chronic pain as possible to experience at least a a short course of CBT. Maybe you've already tried it. If so, that's great. And if you've tried it in the past, but no longer practice it, perhaps you can consider returning for a while and exercising what you have already learned. Now, the whole premise of CBT is that incorrect thinking results in automatic, almost reflexive emotions, which in turn give rise to unhelpful behavior patterns. These patterns become kind of stuck and entrenched, holding the person back from achieving progress. Now, the idea is not new. The concept that thoughts can heal or make one ill has been around at least since the time of the shamans, the ancient tribal medicine of women and men. Also, in the Renaissance, in Renaissance Italy, ideas and um, healing were so closely linked um, that books were routinely sold in the, the apothecaries or drugstores. So, to the uh, in Italy, they were thought to be so co- connected with health that they um, sold books with their potions and their extracts and their tinctures and so forth. CBT is especially effective in depression because distorted thinking is a major theme in depression. CBT addresses several common patterns of distorted thinking, including irrational thinking, where we don't stick to logic, mind reading, where we somehow assume that we have access to someone else's thoughts uh, through intuition. And personalizing, where we infer that we are, in fact, the cause or target of everything bad that happens. Obviously, I see all these distortions in chronic pain patients thinking, but there are three patterns, all treatable with CBT, that I most often see. Um, A common one is catastrophizing. uh, Catastrophic thinking leads one to over-dramatize many things in one's daily life. This thinking pattern is very commonly encountered in chronic pain and has been the subject of several studies. Patients who sense that their pain is becoming worse over time can catastrophize when they say things like, I'll never get better, or the pain in my calf is so bad that they're probably going to have to cut off my leg. It's usually said in an emotional state and um, you know, in a hurried way. Uh, Rapid speech. Now, these statements are almost certainly untrue as there is no association between chronic pain suddenly getting worse and the need for amputation, unless there is some sort of concurrent vascular or blood vessel condition or tissue infection, very serious tissue infection, I would say. Um, They may catastrophize regarding their pain level, their other symptoms, and even their outlook or prognosis, which of course is also very alarming and stressful to those closest to them. Now, here I am by no means suggesting that this is a deliberate action they take, but rather something that exhausted people in distress will do when their pain level appears to spike out of control and when they are fatigued, frustrated, and sleep deprived. It is also a clear plea for help. Now, believing in catastrophic thoughts usually results in a lower mood, higher anxiety, and an inability to sleep, which only is going to make the pain worse, right? Even if the patient were right about the threat to the leg and something did go wrong, it's likely that immediate attention to the situation would eliminate the need for drastic action. Now, the irony is that the patient, terrified of the worst possible outcome, may end up not even telling the doctor about the problem. So the goal of CVT is to help the patient come to a plausible and less negative interpretation in any of these catastrophized situations. They may be reassured by reading about chronic pain and finding out that periodic fluctuation in the nature frequency and intensity of chronic pain is perfectly normal. Now, filtering and polarized thinking. These are traditionally two different types of thought distortion, but one so often sees them closely associated in chronic pain that I've selected to discuss them together. And here the patient selectively takes note of and remembers events and symptoms on the negative side, everything negative they recall all the while excluding any positive developments. For example, a patient may enter a multidisciplinary pain management program with a feeling of having been somewhat coerced by whether it's the insurance company or the uh, state or provincial uh, compensation board. In such a situation, they, they are often resentful, convinced that it will be a waste of time and that they will have a bad outcome. Now, this creates what is called a nocebo effect, which is a negative effect, the opposite of placebo, which means expecting a bad outcome. They end up getting a bad outcome, Um, often resulting uh, resulting in them finding plenty to complain about and little to praise in the program, should they even agree to participate, no matter how good the service is and how many opportunities they are offered. So it's kind of... You know, Um, self-sabotaging, it it can spoil things and sabotage things for the patient. Although lack of buy-in of the patient often does lead to a poor outcome, it isn't always an accurate reflection of the quality of the program. The program offerings and activities may be first rate, but the attendees' low mood can render them unable to fully utilize what is readily available. In situations where the patient may have an unshakable belief that they have been strong-armed into a pain program, CBT asks them to assess the likelihood of this. Why would an insurance company or state and, and provincial compensation health plan spend big money on something that they didn't believe had a reasonable chance of success? The short answer is they wouldn't. If we can help the patient remove their unreasonable filters and see the truth, they stand a better chance of being able to benefit from what is offered. To get started down that path, patients should be encouraged to keep an open mind and see how things progress. Physicians might introduce or partner reluctant patients with others who have had success with the program who are prepared to then share their positive experiences uh, that they have enjoyed. The patient might then eventually be pleasantly surprised by what they learn. This happens quite often in a pain program. The next category that I want to discuss is emotional thinking. And this is a huge category, um, causes a lot of sabotage, Uh, -sabotage, self-sabotage, I mean to say. When you are particularly distressed, you may feel troubled or even overwhelmed by dark thorny emotions that are disturbing and frightening. It is helpful to learn that our emotions are not always a fair reflection of reality. Ever so often there's a feeling that is baseless given the trigger that caused it. Even if it feels intensely real and you believe it to be so, it is a feeling, not a fact. This is no way to suggest that emotions are not important. It is easy to slip into a pattern called emotional thinking. Triggers for this type of thinking can come from the past, one's present situation, or even from dread for the future. The triggers themselves can be misunderstandings, lack of information, or unhelpful fantasies that cause needless gloom. Normal daily life generates many emotions, a time we we all need to try and figure out which are based on reality and which are not. From my earliest days of being a family physician, I can tell you that many of my patients, uh, or as many of my patients, were deeply grateful for me exposing the myths that they had clung to about their own health as those whom I genuinely helped with significant medical issues. A lot of family practitioner work is reassurance and pe- putting people's mind at rest. But you've got to obviously do the work and exclude the, you know the serious conditions and so forth, of course. The, the beliefs they held had almost, uh, these people I'm talking about, the beliefs they had held had almost paralyzed them mentally and exposing these beliefs as unrealistic provided enormous relief for them. When emotions are overcharged with anxiety or when there's already a negative outlook because of depression, it is easy to falsely assume that, one wants, that what one strongly suspects at an emotional level is in fact what is going on. When a family member, co-worker or boss is abrupt with you or seems detached, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are angry. Like everyone else, they have the challenges and concerns that we all have. And it is easy to misinterpre- misinterpret these um, observations. You can continue for weeks or months, burdened by your fears of imagined unwanted consequences based on these wrongful interpretations. While these are not real, the amount of suffering that results from it is very real indeed. The best strategy is to get more information rather than quelling on it. This may entail some extra effort but it is well worth it when you consider the pain you might needlessly put yourself through over time. We are also all uh, susceptible to emotional thinking. If you've ever had a hunch about what you feel so certain about, which you feel so certain that you've convinced you must be right, no matter what other information is available, then you will know what I mean. In fact, None of us have the superpower of being right just because we think something is true. For instance, a patient participating in emotional thinking might say, I can see by the way the specialist looked at me that he dislikes me, so I'm never going back to him. In truth, the physician probably doesn't dislike the patient. But by disallowing the notion that there might be some other non-emotional explanation, the patient misses out on the opportunity to find out what the specialist might offer. In this situation, the patient needs to learn that just because they perceive and strongly feel something to be true, it doesn't mean that they should automatically view that observation as a particular insight. Perhaps the physician was distracted or tired. The easiest way to find out is to ask if the patient had approached the um, physician saying, I feel that perhaps we somehow are not on the same page, or that you may have dismissed some of my concerns. The doctor might well replied, Oh, no, not at all. I'm sorry, I'm a bit out of it as I was caught up in the ER most of the night. And then the problems done. So. We come to dealing with unhelpful thoughts. This topic is important in any chronic mental disorder as well as chronic pain. When people say, I think, they often act as if they mean they know. Some thoughts may be correct and a few may have some merit, but usually some are downright wrong. Now, of course, as I mentioned before, generally people are stressed, depressed, fearful, or feel neglected or disbelieved, which we see a lot of in chronic pain may treat much of what comes their way with suspicion they're convinced that whatever it is or imply it's probably bad as we have seen this is not necessarily true just because we strongly feel some strongly feel some, uh, something about an action it doesn't mean it's reality so in these periods where we are con- we have our concerns we need to exercise our critical faculties more than ever so that we can differentiate between what we think we know and what we actually know. That means learning to scrutinize the evidence and exercise rationality and logic when assessing the situation. Ironically, it's probably hardest to do this when you're stuck in the almost reflexive think, feel, and act loop as we so often see in chronic pain but it is possible to improve with increased awareness and practice. Ideally, chronic pain patients should have some CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy sessions with a CBT trained physician, psychologist or counsel. These don't have to be uh, multiple, Uh, even as few as eight sessions can be helpful and you can get CBT specifically designed for chronic pain. These can be private or in group sessions or even via telephone, more and more online courses are also being offered as current evidence suggests that psychotherapy or talk therapy can be just as effectively delivered via the internet or telephone as when it's given face to face. Self-study through books and manuals can offer some valuable techniques, though there's more to be gained through an interactive approach. Some patients have reported that reading about CBT has been helpful for them, but my own feeling is that one should have an initial, an initial supervised course, even if it's only a few sessions, which will help you become better orientated in the discipline and allow the therapist to screen for other possible psychological conditions that may require attention. If someone is unable to receive CBT for any reasons, financial or other, merely making them aware of the phenomenon of catastrophizing and what they can do about it is most worthwhile as about two-thirds of the damage done by all our thought distortions is believed to fall in this category, studies have suggested. Once again, advice from one's family physician should be sought before starting a CBT course even though there is very seldom any adverse effect. Realizing that it is possible to change our thoughts brings us to a pivotal moment in the treatment of chronic pain, because changing our thoughts not only changes our mood, but also our behaviors. As there is some time left, I just want to go over some aspects of laughter because it's a very interesting subject. Now, as we know in recent years, jokes, humor in general, and even laughter itself have been widely questioned and subjected to increasing scrutiny. Um, So it's kind of also been treated with suspicion and there's a whole lot of reasons for this, which I won't go into, but effectively what has helped sustain us for centuries now turns out to be perhaps no laughing matter in certain sectors. Jokes, and by extension laughter, therefore, like nostalgia itself as the old saying intimates, intimates, is no longer entirely what it used to be. But despite the current tweaking of society's attitude towards humor, laughter remains one of the healthiest human activities, probably among the most enjoyable and still socially affordable in less brittle social circuits, but also a much needed pressure valve for the oppressed in the Second World War, during the London Blitz, possibly the United Kingdom's darkest days in recent memory, comedians sometimes performed in the underground rail stations that, was used as bomb, that were used as bomb shelters. For an hour or so, citizens were, who were unsure whether their homes would still be standing when they exited the shelter, were entertained, uplifted, and transported, effectively at least for a time having escaped the mayhem and devastation. In fact, there's something inherently British that makes them default to humor when life is at its toughest or bleakest. In such time, when in doubt, you simply laugh, at least when you can. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Blitz was a laughing matter. The interesting thing is that they allowed um, uh, comedians in, and uh, it was a safety valve. But it was based on this tendency to laugh when the going gets tough. Now, apparently in Polish culture, laughter is also greatly valued, even exalted. As an acquaintance of mine once explained, when you live for centuries between two more powerful countries like Germany and Russia, you can at least periodically escape into laughter, or so I've been reassured. Uh, We all know a Jewish humor is also legendary for a variety of reasons. Um, The most striking of which, to me at least, is the choice of comparisons and associations. A personal favourite of mine, uh, when I I want to smile to myself, is pondering Woody Allen's advice uh, from one of his movies, to never ever enrol for a college, college course where they make you read Beowulf. This line has the unusual effect of making me smile and groan at the same time, but somehow I do both with delight. And to me, the interesting thing here is that the ability of the human mind to instantly and radically change course or pogo stick, even temporarily out of the pressure or unpleasantness is formidable and endearing. Um, From my own experience, I grew up in a two-cultured home, my mother and father coming not only from two separate cultures, but from two separate language groups. And I recall a good deal of humor growing up, which I enjoyed like from a ringside seat because obviously I lived there and I was young. Much of it memory memorable, even priceless, that highlighted how different cultures frame humor. Later, as I grew up, I got to see improv comedian shows where I would generally uh, try and sit near the front because once triggered with laughter, I quickly got into the flow of things, so to speak, and finding it quite hard to stop. I've been in situations where a floundering, almost moribund, novice comedian eventually tells nearly all the remaining jokes directly to me to sort of probably secure their most reliable support. And this laughing because you've laughed before theme, even canned laughter on radio and TV sitcoms can trigger laughter on its own, despite no jokes being told almost as if it were priming the humor pump, so to speak. A lot of research has been done on laughter. Laughter is a highly social behavior as we very rarely laugh alone. And in social circles, it stimulates conversation and interaction. It is also a way by which strangers can bond and plays a tremendously important interaction in family communication, where it can be a major dialogue and memory tool, especially when discussing the past and which is what happens family gatherings birthdays anniversaries uh, barbecues uh, family reunions the past is is a big discussion point and how quickly it's gone of course now laughter can also physically be seen as a light exercise that increases uh, a sort of cardiac exercise that increases respiratory and heart rate and is believed to keep us healthy improving our mood possibly lowering blood pressure and decreasing the symptoms of uh, palpitations, if one has them. There have also been some studies that suggest it may have um, an attenuating or, uh, effect on tumors. Uh, I find that the research that I've read on that pretty tenuous myself, but I thought I'd mention it. Um, An interesting phenomenon I want to speak about is laughter yoga, and many of you may know about this, but I have attended these sessions, which I may must point out is way more about laughter than yoga. A group of regular attendees, as well as a few newcomers, get together, and laughter is triggered by simply talking on video, um, sharing an unusual anecdote, or even just by pulling a face like we're in grade three or something. Now, at my first session, which was during the pandemic, it was by Zoom, um, I was astonished at how funny this was, which was quite puzzling because I was very happy to just experience it and and check out if it became tedious. I wasn't overly invested. I was wondering why our laughter almost on demand was truly funny. Now, I've got a very uh, initial theory which probably needs way more work, it's that nearly everyone was a stranger to me. And one really gets to see a detailed image of the teeth of strangers. Um, You know, like I'm talking a panoramic view, or what a dentist would say, a panorex view, I guess. But remember here, everyone laughs more for already having laughed. Um, I know it's not a... Yeah, this will have to just be my working theory as I can't seem to shed this possibility as an explanation for the laughter. Um, That having been said, laughter certainly appears to work very much on a positive reinforcement principle. You laugh and then you laugh some more. Kind of rinse and repeat after that. Now, crying is also a great release, but obviously my personal preference will remain with laughter. Another interesting um, fact connected to this, on average, the Spanish enjoy a fairly long life, um, and yet almost a quarter of them smoke daily, and their alcohol consumption is more than double the global average. On the other hand, they enjoy a good deal of sunlight, as well as frequently dining and socializing with friends, which is almost invariably immersed... um, yeah, if not marinated um, in in a, a great deal of conversation and laughter now again this is not a pronouncement on causation I'm not saying a translates to B what I'm saying is these associations are there and the importance of behavioral factors like the benefits of relationships and other lifestyle activities that this may foster. Uh, and promote can hardly, the importance of them can hardly be overemphasized. So my advice is spend some time with friends with whom you can laugh heartily and frequently. Laughter after all thrives best in the comfort of friendship and in a safe and authentic social setting. Then as well, there's possibly the number of advantages that have allowed it to survive the whole Darwinian gauntlet that we don't know about. When last did you have a truly belly laugh that literally hurt so good? Do you laugh as frequently as 10 or 15 years ago? If so, that's excellent. In my view, it's certainly an essential activity to maintain. The once widely read publication, The Reader's Digest, used to run a column called Laughter is the Best Medicine, and I often managed to find and peruse this in waiting rooms before I saw a physician or a dentist when I was at school. Laughter is, in fact, both medicine and probably also has a preventative role regarding some mental stresses. So share some laughter with a friend, as those who bring sunshine to the life of others cannot keep it from themselves as James Barry once opined on laughter. This is your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell on Healthscape, signing out.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time and 12 noon Pacific time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. Have a healthy week.